This morning from Isaiah chapter 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his teaching. Thus thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it, I am the Lord." I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. See, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. This is the word of God for the people of God. So Isaiah speaks of justice three times in the first four verses. He says that this servant of God will bring forth justice to the nations, that he will faithfully bring forth justice justice that he will have established justice in the earth before he stops his work now isaiah is not thinking only about disputes between individuals or in our family where we want to be right and we want justice to be done or to get our own way that's not exactly what he's talking about not that god doesn't care about personal disputes and relationships but isaiah is thinking bigger Isaiah is thinking on a much larger scale in this passage and a number of others in his book. He's thinking justice for all. Justice for all and what that means. In the life of our nation, it has been expressed as liberty and justice for all. Haven't we all said that? Liberty, we're we're committed to liberty and justice for all. But I think we've probably said it more than we have really thought about what it means in our contemporary society and in our everyday lives and how we live as Christians. Now, there's all kinds of different forms of justice. There's climate justice. There's war and peace and justice among nations and just peace. There's racial justice. We could think about immigration or race relations in any number of formats in any number of places around the world. We could think about food and water distribution. We could think about wealth between nations or wealth disparity among individuals in any number of ways. We could talk about issues that people say are issues of justice. Now, Isaiah doesn't tell us in this passage exactly what he's thinking about in his day in terms of what issues need justice. Other points in the book, he does talk about that, and certainly he's talking about the Israelites needing justice, sometimes from foreign oppressors, sometimes from their own leaders. But what he says in this passage that I think is important for us to grasp is that God is going to work through a person 
through a servant to bring justice. You can hear it in end of 6 and the beginning of 7. God is saying, I've given you as a covenant to the people. He's talking about the chosen one, this servant. I've given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Now, to understand this best, I think we need to remember that often we take the Bible literally when the authors are writing poetically or figuratively, that they're using images to try to get us to think bigger, to expand our thinking. We can see that easily in verse 6 when he says that this one who's called, this servant's going to be a light to the nations. I doubt any of us think, oh, the servant of God's going to be an electrician climbing a pole, putting up a light bulb. We think, oh, he's going to open the minds. He's going to bring insight and revelation. He's going to bring light to our thinking and our wisdom, the way we understand God and the way we lead our lives. I think he's saying something similar in this passage when he's talking about the blind being able to see, those in darkness being brought out. I don't think it's too far to say that when Isaiah is talking about justice, he is suggesting that God's servant is one who can offer sight to those who are blind to God's justice, to those who are captive to injustices of the status quo, to those who are in the dark. That is, they do not see injustices going on around them and God's servant is going to be the one who brings the light, who frees the people from captivity in their thinking. Not that God is against real prisoners being set free, or people finding freedom, or real blind people gaining sight. But if you read this, you read through that chapter, you realize Isaiah is talking poetically or metaphorically. He's using images to get us to try to broaden the way we think. Now, I could give you any number of social justice issues, illustrations that are contemporary in our society today. But every time I looked at one of those to use, I thought, you know, there's going to be this group of people that get really angry when I talk about that. Oh, I'll go to a different one. Oh, there's a different group of people who get really angry if I talk about that. But it's important to understand the dynamic that Isaiah is talking about. So I'm going to tell you one that I think has a more neutral connotation. It's about the YWCA. I don't think anyone's against them. <laughs> but you know what they noticed? They have swimming pools in a lot of their Ys. And they noticed that 3,000 people were drowning a year. Now, not all those people in their pools, but some of those people in their pools. And they began to wonder, what can we do about this injustice or this problem? That is, people are dying and families are grieving and they're dealing with great loss and tragedy. What can we do? So they began to observe more closely what they had their lifeguards doing. And you know, they realized really quickly, they have them greeting all the people who come to the pool. They have them picking up all the debris that's left and is in the way around the pool. They have them changing pool lines and lanes for different classes. They have them checking the water to make sure the pool chemicals, the pH balance is just right. And all that is good. 
But none of that saves lives. None of that saves a person who's drowning. And so they decided to institute a whole new program they called 10-10 Scanning. They taught their lifeguards that they wanted them to scan each part of the pool every 10 seconds. The goal was to identify anybody who was struggling and to be from wherever they were when they saw them to over to them to help them within 10 seconds. So they taught all their lifeguards the same program, 10-10 scanning. This is your main job. This is your priority, looking at the water, looking at the pool, because anytime humans are in water, someone can drown. And you know what they found? They had immediate results. The number of people drowning in their pools dropped dramatically. By the end of the first year, they'd eliminated two-thirds the number of drownings that had been happening in their pools. They had seen the problem or the injustice, and they'd come up with a focused or a new solution to what to do. I think Isaiah is calling us to something like that. We noticed in last week's scripture from Isaiah, and it's here again. Isaiah says to us, pay closer attention to problems or injustices in your midst. And then two, he says, we need to make sure that we are a part of creating solutions or bringing justice rather than being bystanders or being part of the problem. Isaiah goes ahead and adds, of course, the motivation for this as those who are people of God is to recognize this is what God needs from God's people. That is, God is working through people for good in the world. And if we are people of God as followers of Christ, we're to be the ones that are part of these movements for justice. The clue to all of that as we read through this in the idea that God is going to work through people was right there in the very first verse. Here is my servant whom I uphold. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. God is speaking about those who will respond. Who will be servants for others. Who will work on behalf and the good of others. Now in the next couple of verses, Isaiah goes on to describe what kind of servant this will be. And he uses images from his own time, but he's saying this is not going to be a warrior. This is not one who snuffs out a wick, a faint burning wick. That is, this is not going to be a leader who is using military might to crush someone or to snuff somebody out. This is not someone who's using political power to move someone out of the way. This is going to be a different kind of justice, a different kind of leader, a different kind of person. This kind of justice, this justice of God is not going to come through worldly or political power. It's going to come in a different way. And after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, people began to say, wait a minute. That was the kind of person he was. 
He didn't use worldly power, political power. He used spiritual power to bring justice, to proclaim God's love for all people. You can even see it the way the gospel writers tell us about Jesus proclaiming his public ministry. Let's just take one example from Luke. You remember that story when Jesus is coming out to his home community. He's gone back home. He's been out and about. He comes back. He goes to the synagogue. This is how Luke tells the story in chapter 4. When Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This is what Jesus reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And He rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Can you hear how Jesus is claiming this role of servant? And how after the crucifixion and resurrection, Christian people, Christ followers, begin to say, This Jesus of Nazareth, he's the Christ, he's the anointed one, he's the Messiah, he's the one through which God is working and doing a new thing. You hear it in the prophets and you can hear it in the Gospels. I think we can see how easily this is applied to Jesus. Christians have done it for centuries. And they take this dynamic that Isaiah and other prophets identify and apply in a new way. You can see it even in the text we read today in that last verse that Isaiah recognizes that God has created the world and all that's in it. He says that, but he also says, and God is still creating. Did you hear that in verse 9? Let me flip back over to Isaiah and read it to you. See, the former things have come to pass. And new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. New things. God doing new things is a theme you can find throughout Scripture. Certainly, Christ followers began to apply Hebrew Scriptures to Christ and description and characteristics of who Jesus was and how to make sense of what God was doing in this one who had led them. They gave gave them so much hope, and then he's crucified, dead and buried. But then he's raised on the third day, and they begin to see he's the one. They begin to say, God has done a new thing. Everybody come and see this new thing. The Gospels use this dual vision of looking back to look forward, of seeing what was before so they might see what God is doing now. Or Isaiah saying they see the former things as happening one way, and then they see God doing a new thing. 
It's a really common experience. It happens in our personal lives. It certainly happened in the history of Christianity where the church has had one position on an issue and then over time they begin to change until all of a sudden they might have the complete opposite view of the very same thing. It's bewildering, but it happens over and over again. I began to think about our forefathers and mothers and issues they grappled with. You could think about the institution of slavery. For years and years and years, the church supported slavery. It's in the Bible. It must be okay. And then some people began to say, wait a minute. I'm not sure that's what God wants us to do. And they began to read Scripture and quote different parts of Scripture. And the church began to have this discussion and then this debate about whether or not people should own other people. And it finally came to the point where a majority of the church was saying, of course we're against slavery. Isn't everybody? And not only saying it, but saying, you know what? God has led us to this place. Now, for centuries, they're saying God has led us to have slaves. And finally, they get to a place where they say, oh, no, we were wrong in the former way we thought. God does not. God opposes slavery. You've seen that dynamic happen. I could think of others. The other one I put in your outline is the treating of women as property. For a long time, the church, it's in the Bible. Not only can you own people, but men own women. That's just the way it is. There's God, there's men, and there's women. And men own women. And so... Fathers can give their daughters away, but usually only if a man brings property to exchange. It's a transaction. He's giving his daughter away, and he's getting some other stuff. And now her husband owns her, right? And the church believed in that for centuries and centuries. And then people began to say, wait a minute. I'm not sure that's quite right. I'm not sure that's what God intended. I think maybe men and women are equal. I think maybe they should be treated that way. I think maybe we shouldn't treat females as property. And it began to be debated in the church. And finally, it shifted all the way into where we say, you know what the Bible says Men and women are created equal. We're all children of God. We're all beloved by God. We should have equal rights. We should be treated in fair ways. There shouldn't be a hierarchy. There shouldn't be ownership. There should be a sense of equality. And there's this whole movement in culture and in the church about equal rights. And even in my lifetime, we've come to the point where we say, you know what? Not only should we treat people equally, that, but maybe God calls women to ministry. And some said, God forbid. And there was a fierce debate about it. And unfortunately, in some circles, the debate's still going on. But we have come to the place, I think all of us here have come to the place, to believe that God works through men and women. 
And God calls men and women into ministry and God gives gifts to men and women to serve the body of Christ. But it's a different way to think than we have thought before. And then most recently, we've had another debate erupt in the church. The question was, how are we going to treat people who identify as being in the LGBTQ community? And historically, we've said they are condemned. They're not part of us. They're not welcome here. We expel them if we can. It's incompatible with Christian teaching. They cannot be among us. Oh, we came to a place where we said, well, they are among us. We realize there are gay people here, so let's do this. We won't talk about it, and you don't talk about it. Don't ask, don't tell. We'll kind of look the other way. We know there have been gay people who have been leaders in churches for years and years and years, but we just were afraid to talk about it. We weren't sure how to talk about it. But then I think we began to pay closer attention and we learned some things from social science and we learned some things from medical science and we began to recognize the gifts God has given to people even when they're in the LGBTQ community. And we began to recognize their gifts for service and for ministry and for leadership. And we began to reconsider and people began to propose that perhaps we change our book of discipline and have some different discussions in terms of how we relate to one another. And just like with all these other issues, it becomes a fierce debate for us in our time. It really picked up some energy and some urgency when the Supreme Court of the United States ruled about marriage equality. And the United Methodists had to decide what to do. And in 2016, when they gathered as a global delegates from around the world, the debate was fierce and it became hateful and derogatory. And they stopped the debate because they said, this is no way to act with one another. And they began to study it and try to figure out what to do. We called a special meeting that happened last February 2019. They discussed and debated some more. It became hateful again. But they went ahead and voted, and by a slim margin, a majority of those worldwide delegates chose the condemnatory stance against gay and lesbian people in the church. But there's been this huge outcry from people in churches across the United States, but not just in the U.S., and Germany, and the Philippines, and Scandinavia, a number of places where there are United Methodists who said, this just doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem like how we should treat each other within the life of the church. And not only did they choose the stance that was condemning, but they added a couple of caveats and said, any pastors who were in ministry with LGBTQ people, particularly if one of us, clergy, did a marriage between two people that we believe were in love, were consenting adults, and were committed to each other, if we did their wedding, there was a mandatory penalty of being suspended from ministry for a year without pay. And if somebody did it a second time, you're suspended for the rest of your life. You were kicked out of the church and out of ministry. And I thought to myself, this can't be right. 
we've, we've taken a step too far. We've gone in the wrong direction again. I believe we created more harm and more divisiveness and more injustice, to use Isaiah's language, than we had before. But maybe you saw the news last week. A group of people, leaders in the United Methodist Church, bishops, clergy, lay people, conservatives, moderates, progressives, a group of them got together and have written a proposal that will come before our next global gathering, our general conference this coming May. They called it a protocol for reconciliation and grace. They're proposing a different way forward. It would eliminate the restrictions and the condemnations. It would allow people who don't want to eliminate those to be their own denomination. It even sets aside money to create two different infrastructures. But those like us at Boston Avenue, we would continue to be United Methodist. Our leaders here, after the last general conference, got together with me. I said, I don't think in good faith I can continue this. And as we discussed it, they were unanimous that we wanted to continue to be in ministry with anybody who came here seeking Christ. That we weren't going to put restrictions on people based on their identity or their orientation. So now this proposal will be coming in May, which sort of moves the whole church in the direction that we've been talking about going or the way we've been talking about being in ministry with the LGBTQ community. We'll have to wait till May to see what happens. I'll keep you posted. I'm writing a series of articles to try to help you understand what I'm thinking and what's going on in the church. I'm glad to meet with you and talk further if you want to do that. But it's all to say that when Isaiah talks about finding a path toward justice, I think love and inclusion is the better path toward justice for all of us in this particular case. Hear what Isaiah says again before we close there in verse 9. See, he says, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Isaiah calls us to pay attention and to offer just solutions. And in this particular case, I believe that's exactly what we're working to create. Can we hear Isaiah calling us to see God working in new ways? I hope that we can. I want to go with God. I want to follow Christ. I want to proclaim the gospel to any and all who would hear. Let's watch for God doing a new thing in our midst. Amen. Thanks be to God.